All right, well, as you can see from the screen, the title of this morning's sermon is God's Peace is Available. God's Peace is Available, and then the subtitle there, At All Times and in Every Situation. God's Peace is Available at All Times and in Every Situation. We've been going through this series on the prayers of the Apostle Paul. And in this series, there's been, you know, this is our 28th different prayer of Paul's that we've taken a look at. So naturally, there's quite a few of them, more than I even knew about when I first had the idea to to take a look at specifically what prayers are recorded of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And we have several left to go. I think it's going to be somewhere around 33 or so, uh, give or take. Now, as we've been going through this series, though, some of these prayers have been a little bit duplicative or repetitive, but for the most part, they've all had another nugget, a new little nugget, something to focus on. And most of them have pointed our focus and attention to our spiritual well-being, to our need to be praying about the kinds of things that affect our mentality, our thinking, our way of walking with the Lord, our, our sort of our, the framework that we're seeing life through versus sort of the physical needs in the physical realm, which again, I believe Paul was praying about, but just not in his letters to these various churches. He was telling them, my primary concern is the mission. My primary concern is the wa- our walk with the Lord and, and wanting to redeem the time that we have. So I'm, I'm praying about your spiritual well-being because that's the most important thing. And the rest of it is secondary to that. In any event, as I was looking at this particular prayer, I was going to skip it. I wasn't going to do this particular one because I told you we're not necessarily going to do every last one because some of them, again, are kind of, are kind of repeats. And I thought this one is a little bit, a little bit repetitive in a sense, reminds us even of Romans 15, I think it was 33, that we saw a similar idea about joy and peace. But as I was about to go past it and was looking at actually the, the next prayer down the list, God showed me that I needed this one. (laughs) It's, it's funny how, Sometimes you think, well, we kind of already have a handle on that. We'll, we'll move on. And then God allows situations and circumstances in your life that remind you, no, you know what? We're going to do another message on that because that's exactly what I needed this week. And perhaps it's something that you'll find that you needed to be reminded of. No matter how many times you hear about certain truths, and maybe some of you are thinking about God's pieces available, and you're like, Man, well, yeah, obviously, if, if you've come out to church for any length of time, I know that. I guess I can just, you know, cash it in for today and head home, you know. But oftentimes you think about these things that need to be brought to the forefront of our thinking again because we maybe know this in a, in a more cognitive kind of a way, but are we appropriating it in an experiential, realistic, in, in the everyday where the rubber meets the road in our lives? Are we experiencing this? And I was thinking about just in, in my own life, life gets, life gets heavy. Life gets weighty at times. Trials abound. Conflict looms. Trouble knocks at the door frequently. Life is not always easy. Sometimes it's just plain hard, as I've been known to quote. And, and you think about that, it, it doesn't mean that God's peace and God's joy and God's, God's um, provision for our life changes because it never does. God's, our, God's, the contentment that God provides, his peace, his joy, his purpose, these things are always fixed principles, but that doesn't mean that life itself 
is easy. In fact, life at, at times is just very hard and difficult. And as I was experiencing some trials even this week, just kind of, uh, sometimes you get kind of just punched in the face, I guess, by some of the circumstances of life. And nobody's immune from that. I'm not immune from that. I, I think, I know, you, I know you know that, but the truth is that just because I, you know, I step up here to share the messages and study God's word and present God's, God's truth, it doesn't mean that I'm not going through or not living through the same things that you are. That we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm not immune from it. And life, life is challenging at times. And what I needed to be reminded of this week is that God's promises and provisions, they never fail, and they're always available. And as you think about God's provisions, one of the resources that God makes available at all times and in every situation is his peace. God's peace is available at all times and in every situation. And you think about God's peace, I've come to think of it as the calmness of body, mind, and spirit resulting from trusting in the power and grace of God. This calmness of body, mind, and spirit that comes from trusting in the power and grace of God. That's what we're talking about when we're thinking about God's peace. Not that the circumstances of life are, have disappeared or that they're not hard or that there's not troubles or that there's not difficulties or that things are not sort of even beyond your, your capacity for even dealing with them. Many things in life are that way and God uses those to remind you you can't deal with these things on your own. You need me. You need to trust me and depend on me. And so you think about God's peace, this calmness of body, mind, and spirit. It's available and believers can access it regardless of the circumstances that they presently face. So if you're making notes this morning or you're, you're thinking, what is the thing that I hope you'll take away? It's that, that you can access God's peace regardless of the circumstances that you presently face. Now, I could look, I could spend time just one by one looking you in the eye. And as we went around this room, uh, you could think about and I, I could just know that you're going through something this morning that is challenging. Mason Williams, is that you? <laughs> All right. I'm glad to see you, buddy. I love you. Uh, Mason's been gone off to boot camp, so he's back here. Well, let's all give him one big group hug when this is all over this morning. He's not really into it, but let's do it anyway. Where was I? Each one of you has hard things and trials that you're facing. You need to get a hold of. You'd benefit from getting a hold of God's peace, right? And for Mason, it might be something different. For me, it's something different. See, Leah, Sean, Rudy, whoever, whoever's here, you got your things that you're going through. And so that's the principle. That's what we need to be reminded of. And this prayer serves as that necessary reminder. Turn, if you will, to 2 Thessalonians 3.16. Before you celebrate too much, yes, it's only one verse. We'll see how we get through this here this morning. Second uh, Thessalonians three, sixteen. This is that it's a reminder of this principle that God's peace is available regardless of the circumstances you face. Now let's read it together. Second Thessalonians three sixteen. Let's actually just kind of wake up this morning a little bit. Read it out loud if you're turning there. I'll put it up on the screen so you have no excuse for not reading along here. Second Thessalonians three sixteen. All together. Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Now you think about this is packed 
with truth. We're obviously focusing on the peace aspect of this. God's peace is available. We'll see that second part, the Lord be with you all. God's presence is always available too. In every, at all times and in every situation, God's peace and God's presence is available. The focal point here is the peace, but if you want to get the full takeaway from this verse, it's God's peace and presence is available at all times and in every situation. Now, as we dive into the peace part of it, may the Lord of peace himself Now this word may, you could skip across it, you could not focus on it at all, but it identifies this as both a wish that Paul has for these believers and a prayer that Paul is lifting up to the Lord, a petition to the Lord. May the Lord do this. He's, he's asking for God's assistance in this truth being realized, this, the access to God's peace being realized by God's people as you're thinking about Paul's desire and now his prayer. Now as you think about this Paul desires and he wishes that this would be true or realized and he prayerfully communicates that desire to God. Paul recognizes that ultimately God alone can fulfill this request. He could have just written, you be at peace. He could, he could have just put the focus on these believers and said, you Thessalonian believers, be at peace. Have, have peace as you go about your day. But he doesn't say that. He, he knows that the source of that peace is ultimately going to be God and that only God could fulfill this request that God would provide peace to these particular believers. Now, some identify this type of prayer as a prayer of blessing and some refer to it as a benediction. But either way, we're talking about a request a wish, a desire that Paul has for these believers and it serves as a conclusion of sorts to the letter as a whole. Now we think about may, may who? May the Lord of peace. That's who Paul's directing his petition and request to, the Lord of peace. Now this both identifies and describes who Paul is addressing his prayer to and it's the only time in the New Testament this specific phrase is used. So as we break it down just a little bit, may the Lord of peace. You think about Lord here. In this application, it's a reference to Jesus Christ as distinguished from God the Father. And this is another example of a prayer being addressed to Jesus as a distinct member of the triune Godhead. Now we've seen two or three other examples of that in Paul's prayer where he's actually addressed his prayers to Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ in addition to dear Heavenly Father as so many of us have been taught to pray because Jesus taught his followers to pray that way when he said uh, he gave them an example or a sample prayer with even our Lord's prayer. Now from that, just historically as a Christian community, we've been taught to direct our prayers to the Father because that's what Jesus did. Well naturally Jesus Christ is he was going to give an example of prayer, wasn't going to direct his prayer to himself. He was going to direct it to the distinct uh, aspect of the triune Godhead or the person of the triune Godhead, the Father. And so that's what he did. And so people have thought about this and wondered, is there, is there one part of the Godhead that you should pray to and another part that you shouldn't? The answer is no, they're un, an undivided Godhead. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because we also have communion this morning too. But as you think about that, some of you are new and, and you don't have any idea what I'm talking about when I talk about a triune Godhead. The idea is that the Bible describes God as one God, an indivisible God. But there's three distinct persons to the Godhead that are all God, but they're not equal to each other in the sense that they're equal of, in terms of they have the same value or they have the same significance, but they don't equal each other. They're, they're distinct from each other, I guess that's what I mean. So they're fully equal in the sense of their roles and their personhood within the triune Godhead, but they're all part of the same God. They're one 
unique or undivided Godhead. Now, there's no human way to really describe this, how you could be separate persons, but yet one united Godhead. And people have tried in a lot of different ways. At least three examples I can think of is people talk about like even maybe three parts to something. But each part of the Godhead isn't a part of something. They're fully God, but yet unique, a unique person within the Godhead at the same time. So parts to something like three parts to an egg, which I've described to you before. You have a shell, you have whites, you know, and then you have the yolk. And it's all one egg and three distinct parts. But these aren't a part of something. They're the whole something. So the Holy Spirit isn't part of God. It's all of God. But yet the Holy Spirit is uniquely, uniquely a unique person within the triune Godhead. You could think of a musical chord. I've talked about that before. Maybe you have a G chord. You saw me playing some guitar this morning. Individual notes come together to form a chord. Without any one of them, you don't have the chord. But yet each note is still individual and it's not fully the chord. When it comes to God, each individual part of God is fully God but yet distinct from the other parts of God. So there's not, our limited human minds can't fully understand that. I'll show you a picture that maybe is a way to mentally think about this. It, it's a very popular description or drawing, if you will, to try to understand this. So you look at this, you, see, you have, we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is why normally when you have a, a an illustration to describe God, oftentimes it's a triangle and you'll have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with the word God in the middle of it. And here's what we have here this morning as you think about the Trinity. So we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is fully God and, and is properly described as God and is lacking nothing in that sense, but the Son is also God and the Father is also God. Together they're all God, but individually they're all God too. Now, the Father, though, is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. And that's just, even again, not a perfect way of thinking about it. I've, I've had people explain it as you have water that takes the form of steam, ice, and liquid water. All still water, all have the exact same chemical composition, but they're distinct from each other. And so that's what we have when we think about this distinction, even within the Trinity, of this, uh, between the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, they're all fully God. And Paul here is now addressing this prayer to me, the Lord, in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, and he's described as the Lord of peace. Now, will he provide or will he make, will he give you this peace that is always available in every circumstance? Now, as we think about this phrase or this idea of of Paul having these salutations in many of his letters where he identifies God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as two distinct persons within the Godhead, but both as being responsible or identified as sources of God's peace. It's very frequent for him to do that. Now, you could, we could look at a lot of them. We're not going to this morning. If you want to make notes, I'm going to rattle some off to you real quick here, and then we're going to look at one of them. But they all use almost the exact same phrasing as Paul introduces a letter. So you always find them within the first maybe 10 verses of any of Paul's letters that Paul uses this kind of greeting where he introduces God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ as separate entities within, again, this triune Godhead as the source of, a lot of times he'll mix things together. Well, he'll say grace and peace or joy and peace, but where they're the source of peace. So this, this divine peace, this spiritual peace that man needs and that God provides, it's sourced in the Father and in 
the Son, Jesus Christ. So Romans 1, 7, you can find it. 1 Corinthians 1, 3. 2 Corinthians 1, 2. Galatians 1, 3. Philippians 1, 2. And this morning we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians 1, 2 since we're in 2 Thessalonians. Now they all almost have this exact same wording so we're not, you're not missing anything from us kind of skipping across that. I don't, want, I don't want to, we just don't have the time this morning. How many of you did your homework this past week? Don't raise your hands because I don't want to put anyone on the spot. How many of you were in Acts looking for how the wildfire of the church was growing rapidly as people were willing to speak about and share the good news of Jesus Christ and how many references there were to how quickly, remember the prayer was that the gospel message, that it would run quickly, that the message of Jesus would spread quickly, spread rapidly like a wildfire. And remember I said in the book of Acts, if you just go through, even skimming through, you're going to see example after example after example of the gospel spreading, going farther, people getting saved, 3,000 at once, 5,000 at once, people, whole families responding to this truth. And of course, just talking about this idea that, you know, as we pray that, pray that the gospel or that this message of Jesus could run quickly, that it could be received and honored by people that they would receive this message. You think about what's hindering that from happening, their openness to the message or our willingness to share the message, which is the greater of the two hindrances to that? And I would say it doesn't matter which, they're both hindrances, but you need to, to think about that. One of the hindrances is that the men do love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's what John chapter 3 says. Jesus says that. The, light, the truth is that the condemnation is that the light came into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. So in part, the issue is that the eyes of men are blinded. They're not open to the truth of the glorious gospel. But the other part of that, the other hindrance, the thing that's holding back the spread of the gospel is, are we willing messengers to proclaim the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done? So in any event, I hope you looked at that. It's not too late. It's something you could look at if you didn't have time this week. Still something you could look at. But 2 Thessalonians 1, 2, again, if you don't have a Bible this morning, Here it is. Grace to you and peace, often grace and peace are put together in these greetings, from who? From God our Father and, distinctly, the Lord Jesus Christ as a separate aspect of the triune Godhead, both fully God, both divine, and both a source of this peace that we're looking at this morning about how God's peace is always available. Now, the Lord of peace, think how Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ is described here, the Lord of peace. It primarily identifies Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ as the source of peace. Now also it describes an attribute of God in general. It's a fruit of the Spirit even as you think about the fruits or the things that the Spirit of God wants to produce in our lives. They start out with love, joy, and peace we see in Galatians. And so you're thinking about it's a God of peace. It it describes his very character but of indicates that he's the author of it. He's the source of it. That's the biggest thrust of even this passage here to say the Lord of peace. God is the source of peace. So if God is the source of peace, Paul is rightfully addressing his prayer to God, the source of peace that God would provide that kind of divine peace in the lives of these believers. Now, 
the Lord of peace, again, this is the only time this exact phrase is used, but more often you see the phrase just God of peace. Instead of the Lord of peace, you often have this concept communicated with the phrase God of peace. Let's look at a few this morning, do some page turning. Romans 15.33 we're going to start with. I don't even have these up on the screen, so you look at your neighbor's Bible if you don't have one. Romans 15.33 we'll start with. Ah, We won't necessarily go through them all, but there's many of them. Go through a couple of them. Do a little page turning because, you know, we do live in a technology world. You could probably get away, you could probably find every verse you needed by just going on your phone or your tablet and typing in Romans and then, and then finding this, the 15th chapter and not knowing where, really where Romans is in terms of the Bible. But there's something very special about reading something, holding it in your own hands in a, kind of the old-fashioned way. Maybe that's just me. Uh, Romans 15:33. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So we have one description there of God being a God of peace, a source of peace and having a character of peace. Now, chapter 16, that's why we came to Romans because chapter 16, we see God described this way again. Romans 16, verse 20. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Hey, how does the story end, friends? As Christians, are we, are we going through life with a somber face, no clue whether or not this story ends in victory or not? I hope not. Too often we are going through life that way. Why? Because we're captivated, focused, fixated, beaten down by the circumstances, trials, and hardships of life. We're not fixated on the hope that we have the victory that we have in Jesus Christ. Our story, if you are a child of God here this morning, your story has a happy ending and it's with the complete victory as God is going to finish off Satan once and for all, throw him into the into the pit forever. He'll be in the lake of fire eternally. God wins this battle when it's all said and done. There'll be victory in the elimination of the very presence of sin. One day we won't be living under the curse of sin, not a sin-cursed world, not in sin-cursed bodies, not with a sin nature. We'll be experiencing glory apart from any of that. And isn't that wonderful to think about that? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you again. Peace and grace come together meaning that we would never experience God's peace if it were not for his grace, his loving disposition toward us where he provides us with access to a manner of living, uh, an experience, a way of experiencing life that we do not deserve. It has nothing to do with merit. It has nothing to do with how hard we're working for it. But the God of peace we see there again. Now, 1 Corinthians, next book over, 1 Corinthians Chapter 14 is where we need to get to. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'll give you a few more references after this. We're not, we won't go through all these, but there's a lot of them. You could look again at some more of these that God is so frequently described as a God of peace. And you think, well, I'm so often anxious. I'm so often distraught. I'm so often worried. I'm not, ex- I'm not really feeling at peace. I'm not experiencing this calmness of body, mind, and spirit that results from trusting in the power and the grace of God. But why is God so often described as a God who wants me to have his peace? That's his very character. That's he's the source of it. Well, because it's available and he wants me to enjoy it. So now where's the disconnect? The disconnect comes from the, it's available 
It's appropriated by presently trusting in the power and grace of God. The truth is always, the problem always comes back to, I'm just not trusting God enough. That's why Jesus says to his followers so often, O ye of little faith, that's why they pray to him, make our faith stronger. Help my unbelief are the prayers. Because if we had a, a trust, a strong faith, if we were trusting God in these moments, then we would be experiencing God's peace. That's always a limiting factor. We'll touch on that more in a minute. Verse 33 is what we want here. Verse 33 of chapter 14. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as is in the churches of the saints. You just think about this idea of tranquility, this, this calmness. God is the author of that. He's the source of that, not chaos. You could look more, if you're interested in this, you could look more at 2 Corinthians 13, 11, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, Hebrews 13, 20 through 21, Philippians 4, 9. If you didn't get those, you can come up here and just look at my notes after the service. Now, God is also described in other places as or God's peace is described as the peace of God. So he's the God of peace and then we have the peace that comes from God. Turn to Colossians chapter three, verse 15. I'll put it up here on the screen, but just so we take a glance here at our own Bibles. Colossians three fifteen. This verse really stands for the idea that God clearly wants you to experience his peace. And it's, it's found here even with this word let. Allow this to be true. So it's available at all times and in every situation. And God wants you to experience his peace. It says, and let the peace of God rule in your heart. So could it? Yes. Is it available? Yes. What's stopping it? You're not allowing it. You're not focused on the author and finisher of your faith. You're not looking, going through life with a vertical, heavenly, eternal mindset. You're going through life captivated by yourself, by yourself or others or the circumstances you're facing, but you're not presently appropriating through faith the provision of God for you to experience his peace. But let the peace of God rule or dominate your heart. That would characterize you, that you'd have this tranquility and calmness of spirit, body, and soul, to which also you were called. You were called to have this experience in terms of you were to live life in this manner, in one body, and be thankful. Like all of the church is called to have peace and unity amongst themselves, but also to in, internally and individually experience the peace of God. Now you think the Lord of peace, there's two primary takeaways from this, this description. One is that Jesus and the Father are both equally God. You have that because God is individually called in all of those passages, the source or the God of peace. Then we saw all these passages that had these salutations, well I guess we only looked at one, but I talked about all those others, where Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father are both identified as a source of peace. So they're both sources or granters of this divine peace that man should be eager to have. How many of you are thriving right now in anxiety and worry and despair? How, how, much, how many of you are finding real joy in that? And the answer is none of you are. And I've never found any joy in that kind of a 
occupation either, despair, trials, circumstances, tribulation, troubles. As I think about those things and occupied by those things and meditating on those things, I'm not happy. There's no joy in that. The joy comes from experiencing that inner tranquility, that inner calmness of body, soul, and mind. As you think about your spirit, your body, mind, and spirit having that access to that peace that God can provide, there's, it's, it's, it's joined to or connected to God's joy in such a way that you really couldn't have one with the other. You can't really experience God's joy without at the same time experiencing his peace. So you think about what is the prayer here. Now it's, a, it's addressed to the Lord of peace. May the Lord of peace do what? Give you peace. And give is, of course, a direct reference to God's grace and you say, how so? Well, because you think about something that's given, it's referencing a gift. And gifts are given, they're not rewards. God is in the business of giving man what he does not deserve, starting with a way of rescue from the consequence of his sinfulness. So as you think about even the message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, it was that all men were born finding themselves estranged from God, facing a predicament, a predicament they could not solve, a problem they could not solve on their own. And so the good news of the gospel from the very get-go is that as man is bo- mankind is born identified with a race of sinners and then choosing sin themselves, for by one man sin entered into the world and death came with sin and then death spread to all men because all have sinned. So all men sin but they're identified with, they're born into a race of sinners. They come by it honestly in that sense. There's not one just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible goes so far as to say even our best efforts to appease God or to make God happy in a sense or to, ple- or to please him that are wrought by our human effort apart from him, done independent from him, done apart from faith in his provision to meet man's need, God can't look at that favorably either. The prophet Isaiah says that all of our works of righteousness are filthy rags. So if all of our human effort, all of our works at sort of making making God happy in a sense or pleasing God by doing the right things but motivated from self-focus and a self-effort that leaves him out and excludes him and does those things independently from him, God doesn't honor those things. And so when religion teaches that you must do, 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 work, 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 work so that somehow if you work hard enough, God will owe you heaven because you've worked hard for it and heaven is a reward for good people and hell is a penalty that is deserved by sinners. Well, the truth is all are sinners. You could never work enough to clean up the fact that you yourself are tainted by sin. Again, by birth and by choice. And if God says that his standard of what righteousness is, is perfect righteousness, and if God is holy in the sense that he's untainted in any way by sin, and you are, no matter how relative to another person, no matter how good you are, you're still a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God, then there's nothing that you could do to earn your spot in God's presence because God cannot be near or around sin. See, you could try and strive and scrub up, scrub as much as you can to make the outside of your life look acceptable to God so that maybe if you try really, really hard, God would one day look at you and accept you. 
And the truth is God already loves you and he already accepted you, not because of how hard you're trying, but because of how he looks at you and how much value he sees in you and because he sees you as a pearl beyond price. And so because he sees so much value in you, he didn't need you to convince you, he didn't need you to convince him that you had value and were worth saving. He already thought you were worth saving. And so instead of trying to work your way into God's good graces, knowing that the Bible declares that you never could, you have to think about God's provision and God's grace and you think about this is always given. We're talking about God giving us something here, his peace, but it's always given regardless of whether or not man deserves it. So if everyone is a sinner, if none is seeking after God, if none is righteous, if all are described as dead in trespasses and sins before they knew the Savior, if we're described as God's enemies before we were reconciled to God, and if there's no exceptions to that, then how is a sinful man ever going to get into having this presence or get into the presence of a relationship with a perfectly holy God who can't have anything to do with sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't be holy anymore. He couldn't have sin in his presence. So there's this barrier of sin that is separating sinful man from a holy and righteous God. And what could be done about that? And the truth is nothing. There's nothing man could do about it. Man was hopeless and helpless and hellbound from birth, estranged from God, alienated from God described again as dead in their trespasses and sins. But the good news of the Bible, as you think about what is grace, God is giving us God's riches at Christ's expense. God gives us what we don't deserve. So God in his love saw us in our time of need and he said, I don't want to leave you in a place where you're estranged forever from me due to your own sin. I want to make a provision to make you sinless, to make you righteous. You could never do it for yourself. So what did he do? He sent his son, Jesus Christ. His son and his love became sin for us who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God or be made right with God. So Jesus Christ breaks down that barrier of sin through the cross. And as Jesus hung on that cross, he didn't hang on that cross for sins he had committed. He had committed none. He hung on that cross for sins that you and I had committed. He paid a debt that he did not owe because he wanted us to be able to have life, to be set free. He want us, wanted us to have, be passed from death into life. And so as he died and paid the debt that we owed, his death the value of his life was greater than the debt that was owed by all men's sin for all time. See, the Bible talks about you either have to die for your own sin, and death in the Bible means to be separated from God, so you have to die for your own sin and forever be separated from God. Possibly you could say, well, what if someone else, another human being were to die for me? Pastor Weefel touched on that not long ago when he said, even if that were true, that there was a righteous man who would be willing, a human righteous man, there are none, but even if there were, who'd be willing to die for you, then one would equal one. one. One man could die for another one man, but one man's life didn't have enough value to equal the death that was owed by every man on planet Earth, every man, woman, and child from, for all of eternity. The reason that the one man the unique man, the unique God-man, Jesus Christ, his death, the value of his death could propitiate or satisfy the just demands of death for sin for all men for all time is because he was God who had become man and the value of his death in the place of sinners like you and I was satisfying to the Father so he could look at the death of Jesus Christ and he could say this death, this sacrifice is greater than the debt that's owed by all men 
for all time. So when he looked at it, Jesus Christ himself cried out, it is finished, the debt has been paid in full, there is no more debt to be paid for man's sin. So stop trying to pay the debt of your sin by working your way into God's good graces. God already paid the debt that you owe. When the father raised the son from the dead, he declared that his payment had been satisfactory. He, it, was, it was a way of demonstrating that the satisfying death of Jesus Christ had been accepted by the Father and then he took Jesus Christ, rose and ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. Victorious over death in the grave. Giving us the hope that one day we would be victorious of death, over death's even sin in the grave and one day we would get to be with him. And so as Jesus died in our place, he didn't die for some of the debt that we owe. He died for all of it. So, so often you go to churches all around the country, frankly, all around the area, even here. You can go to churches and hear people talk about how what Jesus did on the cross was a good starting point. But then you secure your salvation through church rituals. You guarantee your salvation through human effort, human works, trying to work your way into good, God's good graces. And that those who work the hardest, they're the ones who make it, and those that don't, they don't make it. And that good people get to go to heaven, and the bad people go to hell. And if you ask them, which one are you, naturally, they'll say, I think I'm a good guy. And you say, so you get it right all the time? And they say, well, no, but I get it more right than my neighbor. So it's all relative. And you say, well, how confident are you then that where your eternal destiny lies? Do you think you can know for sure where you're going to go when you die? And they say, no, I hope I go to heaven. You say, why don't you know that you're going to go to heaven? They say, because I'll never know if I've done enough, if I've checked off enough boxes, if I've jumped through enough hoops, if I've gotten the right pedigree, so to speak, by getting the right check marks on my report card. So I never, you never could know for sure. I'm not, as one guy I've mentioned many times, I'll use him forever, he said, I, I wonder if I'm worthy or not. And, and so you'll never know because you're, you're basing it on, do I deserve this or not? And the truth is, if you actually read the Bible from cover to cover, you'd see there's nobody who is worthy. You can't make yourself worthy of salvation. Jesus was the worthy one who died in your place to make you worthy when you were unworthy. He made you right with God because his sacrifice was appropriated or credited to your account. And now your account can be in a right standing with a holy God on the basis of what Jesus did for you. So the question isn't, has God done that? The question is, have you accepted that? The only question man is ever asked is, do you believe this? Have you trusted in this? Have you accepted this? Have you received this? Have you put all your eggs in the basket of trusting what Jesus Christ already did for you on Calvary so many years ago? But how does that tie into what we're talking about here? God gives you peace just like he gave you access to his family to begin with. If you're not a child of God, if you have never accepted this message that I've been talking about, how Jesus Christ paid your debt and by faith in his finished work on your behalf, you can be born into the family of God, you can be sealed by the Holy Spirit, you can be blessed and you can say what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we could be called sons of God. You can say I'm a child of God, I'm a child of the King and fathers don't let go of their children. I know where I'm going to spend eternity. These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, K-N-O-W, that you have eternal life. Through what? I wrote these things to you who believe. You could never know that if it was based on this program that you were trying to follow. 
If it was based on this checklist you were trying to check off, and as I've, as I've told you so often, I feel so terrible for you if you're sitting here this morning and you think salvation is based on human effort and human merit, and you're trying to check off boxes. And I feel bad for you because there's one, there's no assurance in that. You have no idea where you're going to spend eternity. Two, if your faith is in checking off those boxes, the truth is you actually won't go to heaven because you've been trusting in something besides the finished work of Jesus Christ to save you, and God won't honor that. Uh, The third part of that is that how could you ever have any confidence in that? Think about all the checklists that you've given yourself in life, all of these things that you thought were so critical in importance, and you really buckled down and you said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to accomplish this because it's so important, and I'm, I'm going to fill in the blank. I'm going to fix this thing that's wrong with the house. In my example, let's talk about my bathroom at my cabin. I'm going to do this. All of these things that have to be checked off for that. Do you think that I finished that checklist? No, there's still one bead of caulk that needs to go along the bottom of that shower stall. You know, it's 45 days later and there's still one more bead of caulk. I've never finished anything that I've started in my life completely. Do you think I want to bank my eternal destiny on me finishing off some kind of a checklist? I hope you're not that kind of person because I think if, you know, I used to be a lawyer, I think if I was going to cross-examine you about some of these things in your life, some of these lists that you've kind of created for yourself, I think you're going to be found wanting. I think you're going to be found that you didn't quite finish off those lists. I think you're going to remember that last week, like I joke about so often, that that list that you had for groceries, you forgot about the half and half. I say that for my wife because I could care less about the half and half. And so naturally I forget it sometimes because naturally being selfish, you get the things you're concerned about. But on the checklist, the half and half sometimes doesn't make it in the cart. When we were down in Arkansas recently, we got, she wanted some chips and salsa and she wanted some half and half, and a number of other things that find their way into the car because that's how it goes. Well, we had to do the self-checkout. Cock about a joke. Self-checkout. I'm getting too political here. We had to. There's no one, there's literally nobody servicing any of the things there. So we go through the thing, we get back to the place that we're staying. She's just absolutely looking forward to this coffee and this chips and salsa. Wouldn't you know it, the bag that had the chips and the salsa and the half and half was still, was left hanging on the rack with the bags. I put all the other bags in the cart and left that one there. We never did get it because we didn't figure this out soon enough. But you think about all the things that you don't get right. You really want to try to get this right? We're talking about eternity here, friends. Anyway, God gives you peace. Everything that we have, starting with our very salvation, our very entrance into the family of God is a gift from God and God's peace is no different. Gifts are given, they're not rewards. This has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with whether you deserve it. And also I want you to notice that God is the one acting here. You are simply the recipient of God's peace. Paul is praying that the Lord of peace would give these believers peace. And so when you come to Psalm 29, 11, it reminds me that God is always the source of these things. God is the one giving these things. He's giving it to those who don't deserve it. But it says the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. 
God is the author of these things and he's the one who gives these things. Now, when we talk about peace here, that's what Paul is praying these believers would have or experience. And from a human perspective, peace is always kind of referring to the absence of conflict, internal conflict, external conflict. And it's somewhat true when you're thinking about biblical peace or divine peace. But God's peace, it involves this inner spiritual and supernatural tranquility that we can have on a spiritual level. And it could be defined as the harmony and calmness of body, mind, and spirit that results from trusting in the power and grace of God like I opened up with. It's this sense of calmness of body, mind, and spirit that results from trusting in the power and grace of God. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about this peace. It's this this sense of harmony, this sense of calmness, this sense of tranquility in our body, mind, and spirit that results from trusting in the power and grace of God. Now, how often is that peace available? And, And Paul's speaking like he wants this to be accessed and appropriated all the time because he says, may the Lord of peace give you peace always in every way. That's where we get at all times and in every situation. So Paul's emphasizing the constant availability of God's peace. When you think about these words always and every, they're definite words. They eliminate any potential for exclusions or exceptions. God's peace is always available regardless of the circumstances. The believer can continually access that inner tranquility and quietness of spirit that transcends circumstances anytime, all of the time, regardless of what you're going through. Now, I needed to hear that this week. You maybe need to hear that this morning. God already makes his peace constantly available. Paul's prayer isn't that God would make his peace available. Paul's prayer here is that he's really seeking divine assistance to facilitate the appropriation of it in a practical, experiential kind of a way. What he's really praying is, may you experience this peace that God provides always and in every circumstance that you're facing, every situation that you're facing. May you appropriate that. He's praying to God that you would facilitate that in these believers' lives so that they would experience this in a real, daily, practical, ongoing kind of a way. Now, there's a couple of things I wanted as we're thinking about experiencing in, at all times and in every situation God's peace. There's a couple of principles about God's peace that I wanted us to consider or remember. The first one is that the peace of God can be enjoyed by every child of God. This is something that every child of God has access to. There's no exceptions to it. It's not like I have access to God's peace and you don't. Every believer has access to God's peace. God wants us to experience his peace. So even as we're thinking about, we saw that even in Romans 15, 33. Now as we're, as we're looking at these principles though, the other thing that we've touched on here is that there is no peace of God that you get to experience in, an, in a relational, intimate kind of a way unless you first have peace with God. And so back to the, the message of the gospel, this is maybe a verse that you've seen before, but uh, Paul makes the distinction between peace with God because we were estranged and alienated, we were, we were distant from God. We were at odds with God. And so when we were in that position, that's how we were born. We had to be reconciled with God before we could ever experience peace with God so that we could experience the peace of God. So it says, therefore, having been, since we have been, is what it means there, we were already, he's writing to believers, justified by faith. 
And because we were justified means to be declared to be in a right standing, declared to be righteous. Because we were justified, how? By works? No, by faith. It's not of works of righteousness which you have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saves us. Now to him that does not work but believeth on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It is a gift from God. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. The Bible repeatedly declares that salvation is accessed through faith apart from works. But we go on here. We have peace with God. We have peace with God. The hostility that we had with God being God's enemy were come to an end because of our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We were made right with God. How did we access that? Through faith. And faith in who? The finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel is called the gospel of peace. You can look at Ephesians 6.15 about that. The gospel of peace. It's a message of that tranquility that ceasing of any conflict that was caused by our estrangement from God. Now, what's another principle? Well, God wants you to experience his peace. I've mentioned that. Here's one where Jesus says this directly in John 14, 27. Now, here's the first part of this verse. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give. There you have the gift aspect of it, the grace aspect of it. God giving us what we don't deserve. My peace I give to you. So God wants you to experience his peace. I leave that peace with you. I give it to you. I want you to appropriate and enjoy that. Now what's the next one? This is God's kind of peace. This isn't human peace. The second part of that verse says, John 14, 27b, not as the world gives what? Gives peace do I give to you, but I'm giving you my kind of peace, the peace of God. So he says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Why? Those are all descriptive of the one who's experiencing God's peace. Are you, is your heart troubled right now? Are you afraid? Are you fearing some circumstance or trial that you're facing? Then in this moment, you're not experiencing God's peace because God's peace is exclusive. God's peace doesn't allow for at the same time us to be experiencing a heart that's troubled and a heart that's afraid because we're resting. Peace involves collapsing restfully into the capable and caring hands of the Father. So are we doing that? Are you doing that this morning? So we think about other principles. God's peace is accessed as a byproduct of trusting him or resting in him. We don't get to experience God's peace. So that's really what Paul is praying that they would experience God's peace at all times and in every situation. Well, how do they do that? How do you appropriate that? How do you experience that? You're experiencing that by resting and trusting in him. You can't experience God's peace any other way. And here's some verses about it. Isaiah 26, 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You see, by trusting in God, you get to experience a mind that's at peace. You get to have that calmness of body, mind, and spirit that comes from trusting in the power and grace of God. As I trust him, I can experience his peace. Here's another example of resting. Psalm 4 verse 8 says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you, O Lord, make me dwell in safely. How is he experiencing this mentality as he lies down to experience God's peace as he lies down to rest? 
because he is trusting that the Lord is the one making him to dwell in safety. Another principle is that experiencing God's peace is a direct result of loving God's word. We're encouraged to experience God's peace by loving God's word. Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. The one who loves God's precepts, God's truth, God's word is referring to one who is presently practically experiencing a relationship with God in those moments too, trusting God and walking by faith. That person experiences great peace, but it's tied in part to loving God's truth, being, being convinced of God's truth. Now, God's peace is appropriated by living life under the influence of the Spirit, here we have a verse about this, Romans 8, 6. As you're walking under the influence of the Spirit, you're looking upward, you have a vertical mindset, you're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. The Spirit of God is directing and moving and working in your thinking and in your life. What happens then? Well, the opposite could be true. If you're carnally or fleshly minded, that's death. Separation from God, but it's death. It's a lifeless experience is the idea. But to be spiritually minded, Heavenly minded, eternally minded, that's life and peace. That's where you experience God's peace. It's also the kind of peace that transcends any human understanding. It's not normal peace. It's not just temporary tranquility or temporary rest. It's, it's a complete rest of body, mind, and spirit that comes again from trusting in God's power and provision in your life. So we see that here. Be anxious for nothing. That's the opposite of peace, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let God know about what you're going through. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, we've covered this verse at length in the past. We're not going to dwell on it, but th that's what comes from casting your cares on him making your requests known to him, trusting him, collapsing restfully in his arms, is that you get to experience a peace that surpasses your understanding even. You can't even comprehend it. The last principle about peace, the peace of God and experiencing it, is that the presence of divine peace does not guarantee the absence of human conflict. Now, the promise is that God's peace is available in every situation and at all times. The promise isn't that life is going to have no conflict in it, that life is going to always be easy. John 16, 33, Jesus says, these, th says this, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. Can you have peace with an occupation with your Savior, trusting your Savior, trusting in his power, trusting in his provision? yes. But at the same time, he says, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. You're in me. You're identified with me. You're an overcomer because I'm an overcomer. You will have victory because I've been victorious. You can have peace even in the face of the human level, the world level, the temporal realm, trials and tribulations that you face. And so back to even our main principle here this morning is that you can ex access God's peace at all times and in every situation regardless of the circumstances that you presently face. Now how does Paul end this prayer? The Lord be with you all. So he said, I want you to experience God's peace at all times and in every situation and I want you also to experience God's 
presence. He's not praying that God would literally be with him. God already promised that he would. Matthew 28, 20b says, and lo, I am with you always, not sometimes, even to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5 says, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is already with us at all times. His very spirit lives inside of us. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. It's inside of us. God is never leaving you. That's not what Paul's talking about. The Lord be with you all, meaning will you experience this? Practically, will you appropriate God's presence just like I'm praying that you would experience and appropriate God's peace in your everyday lives? That you would live in light of God's presence through this present and continuing relational intimacy with me? Will you experience that fellowship with me? And, God, and Paul wants these believers to experience God's influence, guidance, and power that accompanies the enjoyment of a present fellowship with him. As we are walking by means of the Spirit, we're walking in dependence on the Spirit of God to work in our lives. We're walking focused on Jesus Christ. We're enjoying the Lord. The Spirit of God is moving and directing and working in our lives. The truth is in those moments, then we're experiencing what real life is all about. We're experiencing God's peace, God's contentment, God's power, God's purpose, God's will for our lives. That's all a byproduct of the fact that we're experiencing Him. We're enjoying Him. We're walking in intimacy with Him. We're having that fellowship with Him, that relationship with Him that we're, we were created for. And as that is true, all of the rest of it is just the blessings that come and flow from that. Do you want to experience God's peace? God's direction, God's contentment, are those things that are missing from your life? Then experience Him. Include Him. Draw nearer to Him. Lean into Him. Rest in Him. Trust Him. And when that's true, all the rest of it will flow from that. We hear it. We talk about it. But do we believe it? Will we take that to the bank? Will we cash in on that? So this morning, God's peace is available. How often? At all times? In which places? In every situation that you face. The harmony and calmness of body, mind, and spirit that results from trusting in the power and grace of God is always available. And this is such a needed reminder in a world full of trials, troubles, and tribulations. God's peace is available at all times and in every situation just as is his relational presence. God's peace and his presence are available at all times and in every situation. It's a short verse, but what powerful reminders we find in this verse. The question isn't, is it available? The question is, are you going to trust God enough to practically experience the peace, his peace and presence in your life? Do you want to experience his peace and presence in your life? And if the answer to that question is yes, and you're a fool if the answer is no, yeah, that's a judgmental thing to say you're a fool. If you don't want God's peace and presence in your life, start by praying about that. But if you do want God's peace and presence in your life, then the question is, will you be convinced and persuaded? Will you trust that God is who he says he is? His view towards you, his feelings about you are what, they, what he says they are, that he loves you desperately. And will you trust him? Will you find your power and your strength and your direction in him? Will you allow him to lead and direct in your life? Will you want to lean into him? 
Find closeness to him. Pursue intimacy with him. Enjoy fellowship with him. Walk with him. Walk by means of his spirit. Instead of trying to live a life that distances yourself from him and relies on self, relies on human power, human resources, which invariably will fail you. Now, are these the things that you're praying for yourself? Are these the things that you're praying for others? Here's another example of what the Apostle Paul was praying. Well, this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you're new to our church, communion or the Lord's Supper, however you want to, whatever you want to call it, this is something that our church does on the first Sunday of the month. You could do it as often as you wanted. You could do it in many different ways. It was something that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me until I come again. It has nothing to do with any sort of mystical or supernatural type of a thing here. It's a remembrance of what Jesus did how he shed his blood and broke his body as a sacrifice for you and I. What's transcendent about this isn't the elements. They're grape juice and unleavened little wafers here. It could be actual bread and wine. It could be whatever. That's not what makes this exceptional. What makes this time so special is it just reminds us this is something that we should be living in light of and remembering every moment of every day, at every meal, every time we break bread, we should be thinking about the Lord's death until he comes again. Thinking about his sacrifice for us. Because as we think about his sacrifice, it reminds us this isn't about me, this is about him. I can do nothing without you. I need to depend on you. I need to trust in you. What else would it remind us? It would remind us of how much God loves us. What better reminder of that is that than the demonstration of that love. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can you be reminded too much of how, how much God loves you? So at this church, we, we go through sort of the symbolism of this once a month. We could do it more, but that's what we do here. And it's just intended to remind us of, one, how much God loves us, how we can't do this apart from us, how he had to be the sacrifice, he had to be the payment, he had to be the one who could make us right with God. So we can have a heart and a spirit of gratitude and hopefully a a heart that has a renewed sense of dependence on him to lead and direct and work and enable and provide in our lives where we could never for ourselves. Now, if you're here this morning, and you've never put your faith in Christ's finished work, his death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf, this is something that's supposed to be a remembrance and a celebration of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Would you in good conscience have anything to celebrate or remember if you've never put your faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you? The truth is, you wouldn't. So just let the the elements pass you by. But sit here today and say, why not? Couldn't, what's stopping you? What's preventing you? What's the holdup? Because right where you sit in the quiet of your own heart, in the quiet of your own mind, you could quit rejecting Jesus. You could quit trusting in your rituals. You could quit trusting in yourself. You could quit trusting in all these other things. And you could put your complete faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You could do that right where you sit. It's a decision. Are you going to accept Jesus? Today could be the day of your salvation. Do it right now. Do it before They even get to you and then you'd have something to truly celebrate. Be the first time in your life you could. So at this time I'd ask whoever's gonna help with communion this morning to come forward and we'll celebrate.